Thursday, March 17th, 2011, and this is Tunnel Vision, episode 57, the show about social engagement and culture, business, and tech with special guest, Personal Democracy Forum's Micha Sifri. And today we're talking about uh, South by Southwest, what happened there, Debs. Uh, we talked a lot about WikiLeaks transparency and participation of government. And Kevin, what else are we talking about? The national security state and how it co-ops everyone who gets elected. <laughs> God. And Misa <laughs> bringing us back up to the, we, the opposite you are. What else are we talking about? We're talking about the rise of the worldwide transparency movement and how participation in politics is getting more social and how data is getting more interactive and people's ability to plug in and contribute um, is becoming more bite-sized and manageable. Yay. Everything's good and the, the bad will just be overwhelmed by the good. That's us today on episode <laughs> 7. Personal Democracy and the author of WikiLeaks and the Age of Transparency with me, of course, my co-host, Deb Schultz in San Francisco. Hello, rehydrating and rejuvenating after a week of South By. And Kevin Marks. In San Jose. In San Jose. Also and back from South By. Also somewhere quiet, so unique and refreshing. And Micha, are you in New York? Yeah, I'm in New York. Actually, Hastings-on-Hudson, where I live, just north of the city. How nice. Hastings-on-Hudson. It's very, very fancy and sweet. So we, the three of us, were in the same place at South by Southwest all week. We've got lots to talk to you about. Tumble Vision is a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of business, tech, and culture. So each week, we explore various dimensions of tumbling with the smartest, most interesting people we know who are helping make this world um, and helping make conditions for people to engage and connect with each other. So what is tumbling? It's a Yiddish word, uh, tumble, and it literally means make noise, but a, a tumbler was traditionally hired at a wedding or there were tumblers hired in the Catskills uh, in the early days, right before TV and early TV, kind of Milton Burleson, Caesar area. And they were there to get people to dance at the wedding and to entertain and their entertainment wasn't just to be watched. It was to get everyone involved. So the way that you can collaborate in a networked age, how do you make things work when life isn't just command and control anymore? You have to tumble. So uh, here, here we are in the almost a year of tumbling. It was really great at South by to get to meet people who like the show. It's kind of amazing. Wasn't it Deb, to like have someone walk up to you and just be like, oh, I love your podcast. It, it 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 absolutely really was um not ever having sort of been in uh, in a media world you know had someone come over me and go excuse me are you deb i listen to television i'm like i'm going to hug you <laughs> since <laughs> which i did <laughs> since you know we just have all three of us and many but of deb, our guests have you yes. hug you hug everybody who comes up i do you. hug everybody who comes up to me this is true but you get an extra hug if you if you say you you love the tumult. so yeah it was awesome because it just means that the right people are sort of finding 
finding us through the through the through the inner tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty. It's pretty exciting. It was a. The conference is quite different this year. We're going to first uh, open up the show. We're going to get a little bit into news, rel- relevant things of the week, and I guess the for us the the big things were. At the same time, Japan was physically melting and having this enormous earthquake and having nuclear reaction leaks at their nuclear reactor and South by was happening. So we have probably, unfortunately, more to say about South by because that's where the three of us were. Um, and I certainly saw plenty of people in my stream feeling like it was surreal that they were hearing from all of us yes, about what we were doing while they're also watching the world fall away and apparently CNN do just a horrible kind of... Um, it, dehumanizing job of covering it. That was what I gathered from the Twitter this week. I mean, Micha, you were actually not there. Mm, Did you feel like we shouldn't have been tweeting? No. I mean, you know, life goes on. Uh, It is a little odd to see, you know, I mean, it isn't just the tweets from South by about people going to parties. And, you know, at the same time, I'm looking at my like top links that are, being tweeted and they're all about Japan and I'm watching these horrific, horrific, you know, first person videos of, you know, whole towns being wiped out. It was pretty incongruous, but, um, that's the way things are these days. I mean, you know, who was, uh, who for you was the most interesting kind of tumbler of information about Japan? Did you find somebody was not only bringing stories, but connecting people in Japan and you actually know, you know, it's been interesting the way that Japan has not, um, you know, I mean, compared to Egypt and, and Tunisia and the Middle East, where there's a core group of people who seem to have emerged, you know, Andy Carvin being the easy one to point to, um, but a whole bunch of others, uh, Japan, it hasn't played out like that at all. I have yet to discover, um, a, and, and some of it's obviously the language uh, uh, barrier, um, but I've yet to discover folks on the ground in Japan playing that same kind of role. There are people, like I've discovered a, a blog that the uh, International Physici- Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, somebody who's on their board, a, a nuclear physicist who's Japanese, has been emailing them from very close to where this these nuclear reactors are with her own sort of knowledgeable observations of what's been going on. So stuff like that is beginning to emerge. But, but you're um, not seeing anybody no. visibly, public Zerdig in Japanese, play the role of, hey, you know, if you live in this town and you need this, you need to go over here. And It's not. You know, something's – there's some – Joey, Joey different. has been a bit of that, but not quite so much. Yeah, but Joey – and Joey is well, – For some reason, yeah. Yeah, it's more about the politics of it, and the it isn't just that. The Joey Ito is an international citizen. He's he's an outlier, right. and his uh, his Twitter handle is Joy. If you're interested, yeah, I'll try and find that that uh, that blog I've been looking at and put the link into the. If you're listening, or if you're in our chat room, and if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not never in our chat room, just know that when we do the show live, it's a very engaged group of folks. Uh, who we get to know and we try to help connect with each other and eventually we'll be able to hear and see you in the show is our goal. So please do do listen live. But anybody who knows has has examples, you know, Wiseman or or Tony Comstock or anybody here, let let us know and we'll try to we'll try to get them on the show if they are busy not just surviving. 
Um, well, that's I think that's the other kind of piece of the equation. Maybe first of all, great observation, Mika, because even and it has nothing to do with Twitter or anything, because even sort of 10 years ago, you know, uh, the only thank God thing that I've lived through was 9-11. And we had people do, you know, sort of IMing with each other and sending emails to each other. And you sort of haven't seen the. The, the tumbling, I think language isn't a big issue and maybe infrastructure and what's going on might be a big issue. But even folks in Tokyo, I will tell you that um, the we have a group on Facebook called Further Apart, uh, which is the X6 Apart folks. And we had a big office in Japan. So there are folks there who are sort of catching up with each other, but nothing on the public, you know, gestalt sort of out there. Um, and may, is that a cultural uh, thing? I wonder, you know, I don't mm. know. They, they're clearly the Japanese. What we're getting in the reporting suggests that there's such a culture of deference and, and right. opacity right. Uh, from the government, from the bureaucracy, from the power plant, um, and then couple that with obviously whatever the the whole shock to the system is of this triple whammy. Um, yeah, no, it, it the mind boggles. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the one thing yeah. that that seemed to me is if you're not convinced that everything you do when everyone is connected and this doesn't convince you. I I'm, I'm nervous because I feel like when you don't get things like the consequences get bigger Oh, interesting. in order for you to get them. And to me, yeah. this is the beginning of pretty big consequences. When people in LA are like, we can get radiation from the earthquake in Japan, maybe like, 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 okay. I mean, I, I, I wanted to jump to another story quicker, but Micha politically mm-hmm. can, can, Either party in the U.S. of the whatever main two parties still seriously put forth nuclear power as safe and green at this point, or or is this poison enough for people? Like the reality that can oh fuck, oh kill well, everybody? yeah you know um, let's see there's a sort of mistaken assumption buried in your question, which is okay that, what is that? Which is that public opinion matters. Okay, I would speak, like. I would Speaking like. Speaking as a physicist, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm push back a bit here. Yeah. Um, the the public opinion does matter. That that was why we had no, new nuclear power stations built after Three Mile Island. Okay, no, I, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but uh, <laughs> we we can have mass public opinion saying one thing, and our two political parties will ignore it f- for as long as they can. Um, that's not to say that they don't shift. But the shifts are really lagging. So there is an enormous uh, carbon uh, energy uh, lobby and add to that the nuclear lobby. And those people are locked in to both parties. And it will be very hard um, to dislodge them. Has the president yet, yet said that nuclear power in the United States is unsafe? In his last State of the Union speech, he talked about how it was part of his vision for the future, was a new generation of nuclear power plants. So, uh, you know, the, the problem – don't get me on a whole run here, but the problem with politics in America is that we, we get all these mass movements. And if they don't fit into uh, what the two parties are already well-programmed to do by the I've people who finance it, it's extremely yeah. hard to get a shift out of it. By the way, the most depressing news I, I picked up today yeah. was okay. in, this, in this report from the Pew Internet people – this is relevant to the point – um, the one change in American uh, media consumption habits that's most distressing is the percentage of people who watch Fox News, which has gone up uh, uh, 
from something like 20 to 27%. It's like the most watched. Among TV. what age group? Uh, uh, among everybody. I mean, Do I'll people go. People under 35 yeah. watch Fox News. Uh, probably, I, I'll yeah, go. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I'm sure, I'm they, sure do. they do. Yeah, sure they do. They watch it more than any anything else on television, and television is still the primary source of information for people. The only good news is the internet is is rising. I thought that the info said that it's not the primary source of information for people under 35. No, the internet is for people under 35. That's true. That's true. But which what internet is is a different question. Oh God, Mika's just like if you, that doesn't bum you out this next <laughs> let me see what film. i can <laughs> yes we've already decided that, that, that we, yeah that we're gonna curmudgeon it out tonight because so, it's kind of scary so i mean so let's go i know okay there's so much more to dig in there when you're because you're already opening up to just general problems with the political process let's do a little south by uh roundup because there was a lot there um south by southwest interactive it's, it's my 13th year there it's it's an, the oldest to me cultural internet uh, I mean, web conference. To me, it's really the conference that uh, helps the community, brought the community together that built Web 2.0. Um, not that any of those people still go to the conference, but <laughs> um, it was still, shockingly enough, even though there were 19,000 people there, uh, which says to me that, boy, is the web economy growing pretty massively. Uh, it was still a pretty substantially, for me, good experience, even though it certainly changed. And I think, uh, you know, Christopher Carfe, I saw make this observation and, and I found myself saying in lots of interviews that the conference struck me as being like the internet in very many ways, just very big and had a lot of your experience had a lot to do with what your filtering was like and how you could be in the same place as everyone, but not in the same mindset at all. Like you were saying, you so what internet? So maybe Kevin and Deb that say a couple things that were that, that were surprised you that you learned, whether it was just something that occurred to you having the experience or some stuff you learned in, in panels or in smaller conversations. Kev, take it away. Uh, Especially if there are any tumul- tumbling highlights, because I will say to me, okay. for me, the I have conference is utterly dependent on people independently coming and tumbling. There's no question right. that that is the only value of the conference to anyone at this point, even though none of those people are official or named that or, or realize that that's what's going on, actually. Um, well, but that's but that's the you know the the, the thing that that South by South te- that Southwest does teach you is that conversations are more important than schedule. That that's you know if if that's the lesson that people who go there come away with because you can't possibly see all the schedule. Um, because you literally couldn't possibly you know see any fraction of it because they put twenty things on in parallel and, they, and several of them are three miles apart. So you quickly learn that what's more important is is finding a, some people to talk to who who have the same context as, as you. I think you said you said that at, at lunch on um, Wednesday, Heather, is that you they, the conversations are so much more comfortable there because there's so much shared context because you all have a lot in common. Just that you could go to step 20 with some people and get into much harder, interesting questions than explaining the internet first. So, so, yeah. so, so you, you know, the, the panels are a sort of little clusters of drawing people together who care about a topic. So there was a, um, there was a fairly good net neutrality um, thread that, 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 that um, ran through one of the days. Um, and it was good to have, you know, uh, Tim Wu and Cindy Cohn and David Eisenberg and others in the room talking about that. Um, which are the people you'd go and read about it on the web anyway, but be able to have start you know an overview for the for the room and then discussion about some of the details of things. So um, that's one of the themes that followed you through the conference. Anything that surprised you that you learned? 
Um, I think one thing that, well, one of the things that sort of crystallized me was, was, was one of the ways of thinking about open source and, um, open, open specifications, which is that, um, one of the big reasons they're, they're important is, is that they're not fragile. Um, the problem with a, with a closed source system is it only takes one bad engineering manager to, to break it forever. And then it's buried inside some company's grave graveyard and you never see it again. Whereas with an open source code base and open specification, um, no, no one company can, can destroy it by accident or even on purpose. Um, but you know, the accidents more likely to happen. So over time, we're more likely to these open ones are more likely to last. But also, they're actually a smarter move for for, for, the, for a company um, or an individual to support because you're much less likely to um, lose control of it. There's this sort of weird tension between ownership and con- control. Um, the, the assumption is you want to own something to control it. But actually, if you give up the ownership such that anyone can modify it, um, you're, you're maintaining the ability to control it, but you're um, preventing anybody from vetoing you from controlling it. So that, that inversion it suddenly becomes very powerful. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. It came up on one of my panels. Like almost we got to the point where we're questioning what's going to happen to money <clears throat> if this kind of continues, that kind of open source direction that makes things stronger. Dev, what was, what was new for you? What surprised you that you learned? Well, And, maybe- and something about tumbling that came up for you. Right. Well, maybe it's because, you know, my filter through the world, especially now that we're doing the sort of official tumbling podcast, was very, um, you know, A, looking around and realizing that, as you've said, South by is filled with these kinds of tumblers. It's the only way because, you know, that's why these people are coming together to find other like-minded people. Sure. Um, you know, having con not for 13 years, for about eight years, it's so big and so vast. And I loved Chris's and other people saying it is the internet, which is on the one hand, awesome. And, and, but on the other hand, finding those filters and the right people can, is still frustrating. So you sort of do need to rely on people. You sort of have to live in the flow and, you know, sort of very Zen-like wherever you are, that's where you should be. Cause if you try, getting into you know the i must be here i must be there you'll go insane because you'll just be nowhere um (laughs) so that was sort of a really big thing i I definitely went more this year sort of just to have and see and have good conversations with people and consciously reconnect with sort of what got me excited about the web to begin with so what what surprised you so what surprised me what surprised me was uh, one of the sessions I went to, I was very curious to hear, was a sustainability, um, open source and collaboration sustainability with um, the woman who runs this at Nike. And it was fascinating for me to hear her talk about in order for them to sort of become more of the web and, and open source collaboration, they had to make themselves vulnerable. She literally said that, you know, and it was like, yes, that's what we talk about on the show. (laughs) So to hear Nike, this huge company, talk about that, um, you know, was was fascinating to me. Of course, she had a good interviewer and Andrew Zoli from PopTech. So, you know, that I really liked. I will say, though, that um, it it, it still still is a bit frustrating because I'm much more of a kind of person who likes everyone on a single track at a conference hall in the same room. Because I like learning from people. If you have everyone all in the same room at an event, everyone brings so much different stuff and people learn from 
from each other. So what I worry about in the South by is that you're going to get those homophilies that, you know, Ethan Zuckerman talks about, that the people who only care about market and biz are going to be like off doing that. And the people who are into net neutrality are only, go- you know, in order to make a shift and a change happen, what we were talking about at the beginning, people have to get their minds opened. And so if you're only self-filtering and then you're only going to stay with your own peeps, then I, I worry a little bit about that. You know, it might have picked something to worry about and be curmudgeonly. I don't, th- but, I don't think it's yeah. that. I think it's, you know, the, 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 the sessions act as, act as, act as the locuses for that. Um, hopefully, but hopefully, you, hopefully. But the, yeah. the, the, the dinners and the other things act as bridges between the, the groups because then they've got a separate locus and you can cross-connect. Cross yeah. I hope so. I, I, I do think that still people don't I, get... Yeah, I think you have to make it conscious. As, you have to make it conscious. You're not going to get pushed outside of your comfort zone. I mean, that's not the purpose of South by that was just my aha moment. If it is like the internet, right. Then, and, and you only find things through hashtags and people, you know, then are you only going to get pushed and have your mind open to new stuff so far? And that's fine. I'm just the kind of person who likes to, you know, jump over to the other, another tribe to learn, to learn new stuff. So that's it. That sounds right. It's interesting, Deb, because, you know, I was just thinking how it compares to the conference I curate, uh, Personal Democracy Forum, right. because we are moving more in the direction of having everybody in the same room for a great Good. deal of the conference. The way um, it started. <laughs> sorry? The way it started. The yeah. First one. yeah. And, and, you know, fewer breakouts, um, because I do want everybody to have a shared experience um, and also because I think I, I get better talks out of speakers when you kind of say you're you got 10 minutes and you have a thousand people, you know, go, uh, right. you know, people will rise to the occasion. And if they suck, you know, the people in the audience are like, OK, this will be over in 10 minutes. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, well, we can have the, a, yeah, it's but, interject, but I feel like if we go into how to design a conference, we'll be have a different we won't get a chance to get into the meat <laughs> potatoes of. That's of true. Your, of your work, Mika, which I can, uh, believe me, we could talk about it for um, yes, we could. for a long time. And there, I think tumbling is critical to a live experience, especially. So, right. I mean, it's interesting, right. but I'm just conscious that we've got you know about half an hour left here. And you're so. the boss. I was only going to make one very quick point, which is what we get, which I don't think you get in lots of other places, is you're in the same room with people who are not of the same politics as you. That's so. my point. Right. That's the. Oh, that's, I don't know, Micha. Your event seems extremely. No, How many no, conservatives no. are there? 8%? I would say no. I would say about twenty to twenty-five percent are are coming from the Republican side, as well as the Tea Party. I hope is, so, but I. I, I mean, we've true. been trying to get Tea Party people on here. Like we're trying to get Rayhan Salon to talk about it, and I hope so. But oh, yeah, that okay. would be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Anyone you know who's a real tumbler there, we'd love to have them. I can help you with that. Awesome. awesome. Great. No, that'd be great. I think I, I've never been aware of that in any of the PDFs I've gone to and I would like to, because I'm dying to ask them the most questions. Okay. All I right. guess cause it's the most different from me, probably, I guess that's why the, but the, in some the, ways, maybe the in some important ways. thing is, and I, and this does relate to something in my book, the, the technology is neutral. All this connectedness is spreading everywhere. And the rise of the tea party is an example of net centric politics you know, the Tea Party, if you talk to some of those people, you know, one of their favorite books is The Starfish and the Spider, right? Um, I mean, they are inspired by a, a style of organizing that really draws a lot on open source methods. Um, you know, there's one of the early leaders of the, the Tea Party movement in Seattle who I quote in the book who said, 
Um, you know, if there's one leader, it's really easy for for the the movement to be to be stopped because you know who who to go after. But if there are three million leaders, you can't stop it. Now uh, that may be a little bit of a, an overselling of what the Tea Party actually is, but the style is much closer to uh, dispersed distributed network than than uh, you know the old things that that we we're more used to in, right. in politics. And I, and I think that the distributed thing is um it's certainly the in the geek sphere very appealing because it works on the web and it it's more what platforms are like so mm-hmm. i don't even know what i think of it as a left or right thing um i think of it as kind of just hopefully a more effective way but i i don't know i don't see the exist you know a lot more about the existing political structure and how likely it is to allow that to happen because it doesn't seem to want that in the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it's complicated. But the, I, I would say in the same way that after 2001, when the net roots on the left started getting organized and people grabbed onto things like blogging as ways to create new communities and new leadership because grassroots Democrats – felt like their leaders had abandoned them, betrayed them, caved in, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And that whole wave brings us, you know, things like Daily Coast and things like Howard Dean, which were about a community finding itself and organizing itself from the bottom up in, in, in a lot of ways. The Tea Party is similarly drawing on people who, you know, kind of looked around after 2006 when – they lost control of Congress, and then 2008, they lose the White House, and they look at the leadership of their party in Washington, and they say, these people are corrupt too. And so they – and they grabbed hold of things like Twitter. You know, the right is more mm-hmm. active on Twitter than the left in the United States. But sure. there was the, but there was similar um, blogging parallels in the uh, 2000s as well, right? There was no uh, way you know, when, yeah. when you yeah. say the right is more active than the left, you mean some kind of organized left because I think there's plenty of left people on Twitter. Yes, but if you were to do a a, uh, a real close analysis of um, the density of use and the degree to which Twitter is a, a major communications vehicle for the right in coordinating uh, a lot of their political activity, um, they are definitely ahead of the left. Um, and it's partly because the, the American left – and now we're mostly talking about electoral politics. You're, okay? you're talking about the official organized big group left, not no. just individual no. people who are like, and, here's and, what I and, think. Yes, yes, both. You're talking oh. about your, your, your pal who's the like neighborhood acupuncturist who shops at Whole Foods, that person. No. No, he's that, saying both. Oh, well, sorry. First of all, the, my pal who shops at Whole Foods who's an acupuncturist isn't political. Um, maybe they have they have certain lifestyle choices that seem political, but they're not politically active. Um, and you know, whereas the the conservative movement in America, um, I mean, look, look. One reason why they're bigger is they have major media support. They have Fox News. They have Rush Limbaugh. There's nothing. I, I kind of differ with calling it media support. Fox News is a literal extension of the party. It's not a separate <laughs> piece of media. No, it I, is. I, no, it is. No, that's not but a choice. it is. It is. I mean, I mean it's not a piece of the view politics. it that way, but... It's absolutely a propaganda it's, machine. Well, yes, it opinion. is in that view. You're right, Heather, but it is media. But it's still media. But it's still <laughs> media. Without reporting, yes. <laughs> and it's right. lobbying the party, too. You know, it, yeah. it, is, it is trying to pull the party in a particular direction. 
But it is a media distribution. You know, it is. Oh, media. for sure. But that's that's it's got tons of this, the this media. I just yeah, yeah. okay. Fox News Channel: twenty-six percent of people who say they adults in this Pew study uh, who go to television to get political news say 26% are getting it from, uh, say they go to the Fox News Channel, just 5% go to MSNBC. That's stuff that's considered consciously political, because I'd say cultural politics, that's that's in pop culture. Say even like Glee is, is even broader on the other side. And I think that's part of what the right wing's freaked out about, right? Is, oh my God, the, the culture wars of the last. Because it's not, de- the most effective stuff on the so-called left isn't, for that I don't know that I see. You know more about how the parties are organized, Micha, but it seems to me that like Glee is more effective than the Democratic Party. I, I, I don't just, I think Lady Gaga is more effective. Exactly. Sure. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Same yeah. stuff, right. But it's, it's, it's nowhere near as focused. Look, Rush Limbaugh talks to 20 million Americans for three hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Who has that time, really? <laughs> a, a lot of people, uh, by the way. A lot of people stuck in traffic. Yeah. So can I give you so can I give you an example when I had an aha moment about that that power of that talk radio? Just jump um, into it. Go ahead. Yeah. Was of all places, you know, I go as I go horseback riding every Sunday. And I was up at the barn and I was like, Yeah, I said the same thing. Who listens for three hours a day? A lot of people in certain jobs, right? The guy who shoes the horses up in Marin, left county, whatever, is a total righty. He's shoeing horses and listening to Limbaugh the whole time. So there's plenty of people, and I think cons- how how people are consuming. Deb, how old is he? Uh, I guess he's about f- mid forties, right? And how many yeah. of my listeners I wanted are under thirty five? Yeah, it's a good question. It's Heather, a good question. Heather, I'm sure there's studies done point. on it. That's you're my question for everything. There's only one problem: the younger people don't vote. Don't vote, right? And until somebody figures out how to uh, change that pattern. But they voted in the last presidential election. Yeah, but they're not going to vote. consistently. Because they blew all the things they were doing that got them to vote. (laughs) But you could get them to vote because it happened last time. So I don't think it's impossible in the U.S. But but I think, Mika, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but here's the point that I've seen about that. The youth want to galvanize over a big point, whereas, and that's just the nature of where we are today. I mean, are you opting out of sort of central government party stuff, whereas older generations will vote for every election, the local election, the regional yeah. election, the statewide election, not just the every four-year big presidential election. And so the more involved you are politically on an ongoing basis, as opposed well, to why should you always need to galvanize in some horror, you know, that kind of thing, I guess. Well, I, I, I would, you know, a whole section of the book is not, I mean, first of all, I, I should back up and say, can you I, give us the title of <laughs> Okay, let, let's just say, let me say that Misha yeah. has written a book. More than one over the years. Uh, yeah, but the, <laughs> the current book is, um, is Wiki about WikiLeaks. And the Age of Transparency. And it's done in this very funky, independent, new yeah. indie, indie publisher, OR. And, uh, and I have to say, I had a really amazing experience. I was with a lot of political people at South By, and I met uh, a guy named Jim Forat who was at st- part of the Stonewall Rebellion, which was a f- yeah, great honor for me. It's mm-hmm. the first person I've ever met who was actually there in person. Wow. It was kind of thrilling. And one of the first things he asked me, Micha, was, how, this thing isn't political at all. How come there's no, no conversation about WikiLeaks? And yeah. I said, you know, because what, we'll go too far into the conference thing, but South by does not really allow for 
very current updating of what goes on because they do their, their panel suggestions so far in advance. I don't know if right. that's the reason, but that's my, mm. and I don't know if you did. Um, and part of what I was wondering is, you know, they don't uh, help financially anyone get there and they don't pay anybody to speak there. And that my experience getting to see Assange speak was at your conference, which was mm-hmm. one of the most memorable things for me about PDF personal democracy forum was mm-hmm. him and Daniel Ellsberg from the Pentagon papers. I don't know would if he'd show up at, a thing like South by I well, imagine people would he won't come, come if no he, did. he can't he can't come to the United States anymore yeah no right. he's, he's made that very clear that he's afraid you know for good reason I think uh, uh, to visit the United States um, given what they're doing to Bradley Manning I mean he'd be you know do you want to maybe let uh, just describe for people who although probably our listeners know but just real quick, what's happening to, and who Bradley Manning is and what's happening? Well, so, you know, Bradley Manning was this uh, uh, private first class who was stationed uh, outside of Baghdad who um, allegedly uh, uh, is the one who had leaked all these uh, internal uh, records of the Afghan and uh, Iraq war uh, military logs as well as the uh, State Department cables to WikiLeaks. Um, and he has been, uh, you know, since being turned in by Adrian Lamo, who uh, he had mistakenly confided, confided in. Um, uh, he's been in the brig in, in uh, Quantico uh, under what amounts to uh, solitary confinement uh, with, you know, constant surveillance, um, being forced to uh, strip naked at night. Uh, they claim they're doing all of this because he's on, like, you know, prevention of injury watch, but Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, you know, the New York Times have all uh, finally been asking questions about this. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's pretty distressing because he's been he's been held now for nine months. They have yet to, uh, you know, uh, get things moving to a trial. And a lot of people think that what the Pentagon is trying to do is break him psychologically so that he mm. will either testify uh, against Julian Assange so that they have a, a, a reason to um, extradite Assange to the United States uh, or th- because he'll, he'll go insane and he won't be able to present a defense. See, I think I actually wow. think Bradley Manning has an interesting defense if he wants, which is that every soldier, if he witnesses war crimes, is actually supposed to report them. Um, well, that's what I always assumed is what he was thought he was doing. Well, yeah, me too. We, we don't really know because okay. we don't have much to go on. Uh, but if you look at those chat uh, records, and, and I do in the opening chapter of the book go into this to some degree, all Bradley Manning was doing was trying to report uh, what he thought was a, a, a abuse by uh, the Iraqi National Police. They were holding 15, quote, insurgents uh, for distributing a leaflet critical of the prime minister. And it, he got the leaflet translated and discovered – uh, that it wasn't anything more incendiary than uh, a sort of academic critique of, of uh, corruption in the Maliki government. And when he reported this to his superior, uh, his superior said, shut up, go back to doing your job and, and stop asking questions. And if anything, help us arrest more of these people. Um, that's when he says he had an epiphany and started seeing things differently and then you know, started poking around on this classified – network that he had access to um you know what he did after that what, what did you did you read uh bruce sterling's piece about manning oh my god it's you mean the the piece really it's more about assange 
But he writes quite a bit about his assumptions of, I know hackers, therefore Mm -hmm. I know who, what Manning is about. Yep. And let me tell you why he did this. Do you, you've had more contact with Julian Assange than anybody I know. Do you, do you think there's anything to what Bruce was saying? Well, I, you know, sort of like, here's a smart geek. He's got all his access to the network. He's not being asked to do anything. He's just sitting there. Well, Manning, you're confusing two different people. Bradley Manning is a sort of naive kid. Um, who got in way over his head um, and who I think was inspired by, you know, the information wants to be free mantra. He really right. believes that what he did, he, that he, he got access to secret information that the world needs to know. To me, he's like, he's sort of like Mordecai Venunu, you know, like he, he, he wants to show the world something really bad is, is going on. And the fact is, you know, to the degree that some of these WikiLeaks uh, disclosures have had a political impact in places like Tunisia and Egypt. You know, Bradley Manning can maybe sleep a little better knowing that, you know, he may have, he may spend the rest of his life in prison, but he actually helped change history a little bit in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, Julian Assange is a completely different character. I mean, it turns out that Julian Assange, you know, uh, uh, and this came out after I finished the book, so I didn't have the chance to really incorporate it. But, you know, he was very active on the cypherpunks. Yeah. Uh, uh, email list. I don't know, Kevin, does that, uh, do you go back to those days? I, it was fascinating. Recent article uh, by an Australian academic named Robert Mann uh, goes into this in great depth, the debates on the cypherpunks list, and there's Julian Assange. No, this is like 13, 14 years ago. Yes, well no, before. Go ahead. This, yeah, the, the cypherpunks is, I was not directly involved with that, but I knew a lot of the people involved in it. And it was very, and there was a whole, you know, um, cultural movement around it, around you know, the, the hacking books, the cryptonomicon. And, and Kevin, and, did any of them really tumble between them? I mean, was tumbling critical to sharing information or what they were doing? Um, to some extent. I mean, the, the, there was this sort of overlap between the actual security researcher types um, and the who were, you know, who were trying to build, move cryptography from military secrecy to um, public visibility. So Phil Zimmerman would be the example of um, of the Tumblr there, who made pretty good privacy, basically made an open source email encryption software and, and spread that very broadly so that everyone was was able to use that. Um, but the, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a difficulty in, in, in tumbling in the security community because they, they tend to be um, they tend to attract secretive people, shall I say. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> exactly. Don't connect me to anybody else. So, but but, but from the, but from that group, if you if you think about the security protocols we we all now use, people like um, you know, Bruce Schneier would be the, the example. Bruce Schneier wrote literally wrote the book on cryptography, um, applied cryptography. But but he his 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 subsequent books, um, uh, Beyond Fear, and I forgot the title of his, his most recent one, um, were, were much more about the societal implications of it. Once he'd done the engineering, he realized that the societal problems were much more difficult. And started running about that and thinking about that too, right? But you know, the 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 thing that I think maybe can, if I can try and tie some of these loose threads in in some more of a unified direction, the reason I wrote this book was not because I wanted to write about WikiLeaks. Um, WikiLeaks was just a useful hook. It was really more to kind of say WikiLeaks is part of a continuum of changes. And we're moving to a more open world. We're moving into a world where two big things are happening. 
that are both being fostered by this this sort of spread of ubiquitous cheap connection technology. The first one is is that activism, participation is becoming easier and it's also becoming more social. It's becoming more connected. You don't need permission. And it's very easy for small groups of people to just kind of put things out there. And if they are compelling to other people, they get spread. The second thing that's changed, and this is also uh, related to the first one, is the data itself, information, has become uh, more interactive. Uh, you can connect it up in new ways. You know, it's kind of wild um, to remember, you know, the, the transparency through uh, sunlight of information is a very old idea. But the ability to connect up information dynamically, that's much newer. You know, the, the first yeah. uh, mashup, for example, right, uh, housing maps um, was in 2005. You know, here's a guy who takes Craigslist apartment listings and right. puts them up on a Google map. He didn't, nobody said, Hey, you can go do that. He just went and did it because the, 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 the Google maps API was open. And, you know, basically Craigslist didn't say one way or the other, whether you could, could do it. So he just went and did it. And now the, the ability to move data together along with people being able to contribute data into the stream. That's what gets us projects like Ushahidi, right? Which is this, kind of now global platform, which was originally invented in two, you know, three years ago. It's not that long ago um, by activists in Kenya who simply wanted to share information about post-election violence uh, there when all the, the major news channels had been shut down by the government. And that because they built it as an open source platform that was easy for other people to take and, and build their own, you, you know, it, uh, uh, instances of it's been used in dozens of cases, not just around election. They monitors. use it at crisis camps a lot. They use it at crisis camps. They are using it in Japan right now. Hey guys, yeah, hate, not to interject, know. but I'm yep. on the I'm on the crisis mappers um, task force. Mm -hmm. So we did it. We used it, you know, during the revolution. I mean, it, what's fascinating. What do you mean, talk, the, the, the revolution? Specify the, maybe the well, the Libyan revolution, Libyan the Egyptian revolution. Rev, and the Egyptian revolution. So the point is, what to add on to what you're saying also is not only that data can be mashed up in, in ways and people could connect in interesting ways. You can do it in. To me, the third thing is in bits and bytes. So mm -hmm. I can participate and help. In crisis mapping, and I literally sign up for two-hour time slots or four-hour time slots and, and get involved in helping people on the ground. So to me, the third thing that makes it super interesting is this ability to sort of, you know, everyone contributes their little bit. It's sort of the Linux code thing. You can, you, mm. can, you, you, you can not only that, but it doesn't require this incredible amount of time, effort, and energy. I am only a political activist. 24-7. I am only this. I am only that. It's the old cognitive surplus a la Shirky. So I love that piece of it as well, that I can participate. I can't do it all the time. I have a day job, blah, blah, blah. But I can say, I have four hours. Give me, some, give me a task. Let me do it. I'll map some stuff for you. Boom. Right. Go. Right? Right. right. Awesome. And, yeah. And we're seeing people do that now. You know, the, the way that people are swarming around some of the documents that WikiLeaks is releasing to pour over them and, and find the good stuff. Sadly, right? I have to say the first time I saw that, because the show doesn't go by that I don't talk about her, was, yeah. uh, was <laughs> when, was when um, all of Sarah Palin's emails were released under one of the lawsuits, and there were massive numbers of them. And it was mm. totally fascinating to be on some of the blogs about her and watch people who are just blog commenters just kind of divvy up 
do all this reporting and go through all these emails. I mean, these were not, you know, themselves, especially they're programmers or something. Right. And that's where I expect that behavior a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a double-edged sword. You know, the, the, the more, the case that just happened where anonymous went after the security firm HB Gary. And and who is anonymous? It's an actual organization. (sighs) Right. So I'm so I, just I want it, there are people. Who not everyone knows who listens. Right. OK. I need to explain. Uh, it's hard to explain what anonymous is. And I think that's part of the point. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's mm-hmm. this amorphous, you know, swarm of activists, some of whom are extremely good hackers, um, though many of whom may just be teenage boys. And that's not necessarily or girls. Or girls, though, judging from a lot of the misogyny in <laughs> a lot of the stuff that – I mean, this overlaps with the 4chan community to a certain degree right. as far as we know. Um, there's a lot of, of nasty uh, behavior in parts of Anonymous. But Anonymous um, first sort of appeared on the scene, as it were, um, in this kind of uh, attack on Scientology. Um, and not only did they go after Scientology – electronically to try and crack open the church's information sphere. The church is very, very secretive about how it really works. Um, and they post very litigious and very litigious. So, they, you know, they posted internal church documents on WikiLeaks, by the way. Um, but they also appeared on the ground. Um, and with these events where people would wear the, um, Forgive me because I, I can never remember the name of the mask that they, they wear from uh, – V from Vendetta? Yes, from the Vendetta movie. Um, and you know, by staying anonymous, you, know, you can do certain things that you otherwise would have difficulty doing. How do you coordinate uh, people in Tumul if you're all anonymous? Well, you know, we've gotten glimpses of this. Uh, a lot of them are using collective, uh, collaborative um, editing tools like PiratePad. Uh, so you can go and see, like, what they are drafting a press release, 20 or 30 people all typing into this thing at the same time. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it. it's a phenomenon. I'm not sure it's a completely great phenomenon, right? Like a, another one of the things that happened after WikiLeaks was uh, – The backlash, right, is, yeah. is, you know, Amazon kicked WikiLeaks off its servers – uh, PayPal uh, stopped uh, uh, managing uh, donations to WikiLeaks and so on. And so Anonymous decided to go after these companies and try and take down their websites using uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And they have built a tool that's very easy to download and use. It's not entirely anonymous, which is something bad, you should know. Um, but thousands and thousands of people were sort of grabbing, you know, joining in because they wanted to get a little revenge in support of WikiLeaks. Um, it's hardly the best solution to the problem. I mean, you know, what, what Amazon did in kicking WikiLeaks off its servers was very, very disturbing to me. It's probably one of the, the main reasons why, you know, I got motivated to write this book because it really was a telling moment about, you know, just how tenuous – and fragile this notion that we have, you know, robust internet freedom here in the United States really right. is. And the, yeah, and the same thing. I mean, the fact that people forget that it is, you know, that oh, you can never just shut off the internet, you know, like the, you know, but you can. Uh, right. There are avenues to do it. I, I have a question for you, um, 
that that might be less on the uh, regarding WikiLeaks and what you've learned from it because I had a really interesting conversation at South by Southwest of all places with some folks in the State Department mm. and you know not digging really deep of late and following it the way that you have been the last few months I you know we talked about Bradley Manning and his, you know his you know, naive uh, catalyst, maybe in a, in a, in a good hearted way to get this off the ground. And then you go down the stream to the fact that there's some state department cables that are left, that are left open. And what was fascinating to me and what makes it me, what's a little troubling to me is that the way this whole WikiLeaks phenomenon has come out is that the result of it maybe ultimately is going to be a good thing. But in the short term, you've got more of a crackdown on transparency. You've got more of a crackdown and a misunderstanding of the way that the world sort of needs to become, you know, and Mm. become more transparent. And everyone looks at it very black or white. And interestingly, in talking to the State Department, and I was at an event where there was an MI5 guy there. I now sound like I'm in cahoots with like CIA, but uh, (laughs) the spy network. I'm not. They were saying like, we're happy that this happened. We're just unhappy in the way that it happened because, you know, it, there are too many things that are classified as secret. But on the other hand, when it comes to the State Department and some of the diplomacy things, it did impact certain people's lives on the ground and certain diplomacy that does have to happen so that people in our tumbling space here that we talk about can feel safe. Like sometimes, you know, diploma- diplomacy happens because when you're trying to forge a relationship, sometimes neither side trusts each other and you need to have a back channel, right? Not everything. So, it be- so to me, it's become this very all or nothing universe and the backlash is bad. Well, um, so look, I'm just wondering yeah, what you what yeah, you took I, away from some of that. And I want to I want to know, Michael, if you think there would have been any way for this general uh, vector you're talking about to happen without backlash. I mean, it seems oh, to be sure, it would, no, it definitely would have. Okay, had so so first of all, there there are so many ironies to unpack here. Right. The first problem is is that we have an administration that says it's for more transparency. And on the domestic side has done some things that have begun to make government more transparent. But when it comes to national security, it's basically continuing the Bush policies. Um, Why do you think? Well, because we have a national security state that doesn't really get changed by elections. Right. Um, So we, we, you know, I, I said I was being interviewed about this the other day. And I said, you know, it might be helpful to think of America as having two governments. Um, There's sort of this permanent national security state that's grown up since World War II that is so big nobody even knows how many people have a security clearance or how much money is being spent on it. Um, Do we know who's making the money? And no. I mean, there's a classified – I mean, there's many, many – there are many, many pieces of this that are are completely opaque. Um, And – it's very hard to challenge that thing. Right. Um, and, you know, f- over the last five, six years, it's, it's really depressing to think about, you know, that the government secretly wiretaps millions of people without a warrant. Um, that's a felony. But none of those people are uh, ever going to be investigated. Um, and worse, uh, all the major telcos give the, you know, participate in the wiretapping. And after this is all exposed – they get retroactive immunity from Congress. Um, that's how lawless the this piece is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's I, and, so the, I, and the, uh, sorry. And the other piece that, that is that the, the co-option piece is as soon as somebody gets elected, elected into office, they are co-opted by being given the security briefings and being told you are now cannot talk to people. 
right. put about this. Um, Good point. So the, 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 the sort of the illustrative story of this, the first thing that the British Prime Minister is asked to do is to write the letters that go in the nuclear submarines to say whether you would retaliate or not after a nuclear strike. Um, that That is... You know, this is a complete piece of theatre that is designed to make them feel powerful and uh, possessed of great secrets, and then th- that they then they will listen to the briefings from from that that group of people. They're very good at this. Right. right. There's another point which I I bring into the book that comes from Daniel Ellsberg, which is that oddly enough, the whole secrecy system creates a situation where, first of all, open source information. Isn't isn't considered as valuable as the top 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 secret? You stuff. mean for journalists? No, for who? For, no, for, just, for people in the system. For people right? in the system, for anyone. Um, and there's a, this great example uh, that Daniel Patrick Moynihan actually raised in a big oh. study he did on trying to reduce the amount of uh, secrets we classify. At the time of the Bay of Pigs, when the United States tried to overthrow Castro, um, there was a public academic study that was done of the popularity of the regime in Cuba that found like 70% of Cubans at the time thought things were going to get better in their country. And they basically were hopeful and had a lot of faith in their new government. And that study could have told anybody, you know, any attempt to overthrow this thing is going to fail right now. And Moynihan makes the point that had the thing been classified, it might have been listened to. Which is, it's funny enough, that's what Kevin said was one of the things he took away from South by, was that the projects survive that are open source. So what do you think would take for them to start valuing information for being accurate and not just secret? Here's the next problem. So then now we have a government that actually, in Hillary Clinton and deputies like Alec Ross, who I know and like very much, are promoting internet freedom and, you know, kind of open source democracy for the rest of the world, right? That the more information flows, the, you know, the more transparency, the less corruption. Uh, I mean, Obama was in China talking to students at a town hall meeting, and he was talking about all these great values of openness and transparency. They want democracy activists to do this to their governments, but the, the problem is, is, so along comes a guy like Julian Assange and says, okay, well, we're going to do it to you. And by the way, we're not going to do it in a way that is on your timetable or according to your rules. I mean, the truth is it's a disruptive new technology, um, open information. And, you know, the United States, has, it sh- we shouldn't be naive that it isn't going to be done to us too. And the more uh, agree, powerful, but, yeah. more secretive these 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 institutions are, the more risk of exposure there's going to be. It just takes one weak link, one person. Maybe he thinks it's an act of conscience, whatever. Right. It's um, inevitable. Mm-hmm. But isn't there? But isn't? But my, you know? But the, the point of what I was trying to say before is this: all or nothing. Yes, information wants to be free and transparent. I'm going to take the conservative view just because. What the hell here? Some things do need to be kept. Private and you why? know, the conversation why, I was having why for sometimes for private? people's lives, for safety at sake. But you know, I, I'm just curious what makes it them right, safe but, that but, it's all private. I mean, you know, my and also it, it prevent and when because of the time period that we're in now, there's even less trust across the border. So my my the conversation I had with the folks at the State Department was, you know, we were just and these are the guys who are trying to push more openness. They're the you know within there, and that's all I'll say. But 
you know, they were like, we were just getting to a point where people were trying to get more open and now they won't even show up and take notes in a pencil and paper at our meetings. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, it, you know, so it made it, so it's sad in a way. So I, you know, not being as well versed in all the data and WikiLeaks, you know, my point is sometimes when you're trying to get stuff done, you want to be behind closed doors. A, sometimes I'm not saying everyone all the time. Sometimes people's lives are at stake when everything is open. Well, so for argument's me, sake, though, not everything has been exposed. You see, they right. are... But you, that's, you are, and that's the third point. Like, you're taking the worst-case scenario, which right. is... Purpose, yes, for the hell is of it. that a pure... Let's hear da- from Micha. There has not been a pure data dump. There have only been about four or 5,000 cables published, and the ones that have been published are all redacted. They are deleting personally, you know, sensitive information from right. these things. Good. Um, and so, you know, it, it, yes, I agree with you that there needs to be confidentiality. There needs to be back channels. Um, I don't think anybody in the transparency movement is arguing that you have to run the world in a completely, you know, naked manner all the time. No one is arguing that. I think what we're arguing is, uh, is first of all, to reestablish trust and accountability the default setting should be open and then make a case for why something has to be closed. But Agreed. now too much is closed. And Far wasn't there that really good New York Times piece a couple of months about that talked about that? And that was the other point in talking to the State Department and my five folks. They're saying what we're happy about is that too much stuff is secret. They need to reclassify, to your point, secret, you know. Mm-hmm. What is, you know, the levels and the hierarchy of what needs so, to be secret or not? So, so Micha, if, if it's true that you need people to tumble in a not network, like the rest of the world is becoming more networked, but I would imagine military and State Department are traditionally not networked and they're more hierarchical. Are they going to be able to, to, to manage themselves in a more networked way? Will government in general work that way? Will they have kind of tumbling as part of their skill set or will it not be possible because no one – knows what each other is supposed to know because of all this. Well, well, that's I, what these cables were, right? The cables were their internet. Well, well, yes. And they they were walls. tumbling and amongst they, themselves. And they still are. They still are. They're just going to have better security procedures, which is, frankly, what they right. should have done in the first place. Um, but there's something else. The problem is that, I mean, here's, here's what I think of as the silver lining to uh, what WikiLeaks has done to, to the United States, hopefully, which is the best antidote, the best way to inoculate yourself from this problem um, is to make sure that your actions are, are more congruent with your words. Um, you know, if this had been, say, the Swedish foreign ministry having its internal uh, records, uh, you know, posted online, uh, there'd be almost no scandal because, you know, basically they, they do what they say they're doing. In the case of the United States, there is a lot of duplicity, a lot of stuff that they don't want the public to know. For example, the, the, the Pentagon said, we don't keep a body count. We don't know how many people are getting killed in Iraq. Um, we're not in the bean counting business. It turns out, in fact, they, they did keep a record and that the numbers based on the WikiLeaks disclosures were significantly higher, the number of civilians killed in Iraq, uh, than what outside observers had thought. Um, you know, when the Pentagon lies again and again, this is the, the deeper problem is – is they use secrecy yes. not just because they need to have some confidentiality to do the things that diplomats do. They use it to lie to us. Um, they don't want us to know what they're doing. They because... also don't want 
Why? Because they're doing things that we would reject. Um, they don't want us to know that Afghanistan is an endless quagmire. We know it anyway. Um, but they, we would know, rather... they don't want us to know that they know it, too. And, and by the way... That they're they not are, in control and, and have a solution. And they are also completely hypocritical on this issue of the information must be kept confidential because the people at the top of the government leak all the time. Mm. And, they, and they do it for strategic reasons. They do it for bu- bureaucratic and fighting reasons. Uh, you know, Petraeus leaked his plans for Afghanistan so that he could pressure Obama into adopting what he wanted. Uh, I'm sorry, not Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal, the, the guy who they later uh, dumped. Um, I mean, you know, top secret stuff is given to Bob Woodward that is far more, uh, uh, you know, aiding the enemy, if you will, than anything that Bradley Manning leaked. But Good they are point. not prosecuting Bob Woodward, right? Because he plays their game with them. And this is the, the, the thing that's so hard to digest in the disclosures that WikiLeaks has made about U.S. foreign policy is that, uh, you know, they're, they're – they're pouring a hundred billion dollars a year in an unwinnable fight in Afghanistan. You know, the, the GDP of Afghanistan is about 17 billion and we're spending six times that. And a lot of that is just flowing into, you know, Karzai's, uh, uh, you know, patronage network and parts of it are going straight to the Taliban. Um, so what you're saying is essentially they don't want to have an accountable government, or, not, the, not the national security part of it, I'm afraid. Or it, it, or that's not a conscious thing. It's just that it's used to operating this way. It's kind of more closed way. I mean, it is kind of it, from where you're, the picture I'm I'm hearing from you that you're painting. Given that how steeped in the net, uh, the, the the those of us in this conversation are, is how can the openness continue without colliding with? Like, how can the culture and how they operate continue? I just don't see. Well, that's the, 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 the reality of the time that we're in is that these collisions are going to keep happening until we get a culture change. And it may just take a, de- a generation. I think Probably. this is also connected in the case of the United States. And, you know, it's interesting, Kevin, what you said about the, the British nuclear thing, right? Because, you know, the, why does Britain need nuclear weapons? Can you tell me? Um, but – they have them because it makes them sort of a demi-superpower, right? Well, they, have, they have them because they helped invent them, I think, was, was the original thing. But, yeah, it's, 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 the debate's going on now. I was like, do they need to, need to replace them? That, that is, that is, yeah. But, but it's, you know, you really want to ask, like, what, what exactly does the nuclear arsenal do for Britain? And I think the answer is it means they have to have a seat on the Security Council. Um, I mean, strategically, who, who's trying to invade well, as Britain? As long as the French have got them. Oh, I see. I see. The French might invade. I mean, does does anyone know that's, why? That's a yes, minister joke. Um, <laughs> well, no, it's just because it, the French and the British just, you know, it's a one-upsmanship on a constant. Who, know, who, who, is, who has Britain fought the most over the last 500 years? It's basically yeah, the French. The French. So, so, we're, um, so, so, so unfortunately, we've got to head into kind of near the end of our, of our time. But it's obviously a bit complicated. Um, <laughs> or or it's, it's not. I mean, really, even if this is just a lot of detail, it kind of comes across as, well, take your money, taxpayers. It's going to go to whatever contractors have their sort of permanent unaccountable. No, 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 no. I, Heather, Heather, I, can I interrupt you? I, I would be unhappy if we ended on a downer. Um, I did not write this book to depress <laughs> people. I, I wrote this book to inspire people. And the reason is that I think we're in the early stages of a big wave of, of public participation 
in governing ourselves, that the dispersion tech, you know, of technology into many hands will make this wave grow and grow and grow. Um, and I'm inspired what, by what just happened in Tunisia and Egypt, um, mm-hmm. which I think are continuations of this wave. What about Madison, Wisconsin? Uh, you might add Madison to that. Um, and that there are many, many handholds for people to grab and join and help grow this. You know, I think an old way of doing things is starting to die and a new one is being born. And frankly, we need more midwives. Um, and you and I, ah. you know, all of us on this call may understand this stuff very well, but I, I wrote this book in part to just help connect the dots and sort of as a guide to the newbies. Um, because I do think WikiLeaks has been a wake-up call for a lot of people and in some ways an inspiring one. And I wanted people to see that actually there is a worldwide movement for greater transparency and participation. In do, the you dis- think, and yeah. do you think the movement for transparency is a sort of non-partisan thing in the U.S.? Absolutely. The Republicans right now are doing things that, that the Democrats promised to do and failed to do. There, there's this one thing, that ha- one thing that happens when, when government changes hands – Mm-hmm. Um, which is that the incoming people have just been campaigning for transparency and the outgoing people suddenly want it. You can get it passed at that point. That's what happened here and it's what happened in the UK as well. When the, when the government changes hands, there's this narrow window where you can actually get this stuff through. I totally because agree. Because both parties are then aligned against the security state um, and those of us on this side can, can, can sort of ratchet things up a bit. Mm-hmm. That's, so if you, if you actually look at data.gov and when the, the UK data secrecy stuff happened, it was, it was always at power transitions. Right. So as we as we head into the into the sunset of episode fifty seven, um, Micha, when you're working and finding all this stuff out, uh, <laughs> Myers asked a great question, which is we want to ask each person here to close things out. What are some tumbling tricks? I mean, you connect people in the sort of political realm. Sometimes yeah. different parties. Sometimes they're coders. Sometimes they're journalists. Sometimes they have different backgrounds. What are things that you do that work for you in bringing people together? And also, I would say, in finding some of this stuff out that you're telling us. If you want it on your own to go figure stuff out. Well, you know, I use Twitter as a a sort of real-time, you know, early warning system um, and follow a lot of people who work in the transparency arena. So a lot of things crop up. And what are some good names of people? Well, I would – the place I was going to say is go to the Sunlight Foundation – which I helped get started five years ago um, and follow, you know, they're very active on Twitter. Um, they also have a great uh, piece of the organization called the Sunlight Labs, which is uh, a core group of about 20 staff developers and designers. But really it's a community of about 2000 volunteer developers and designers, hackers, civic hacktivists, if you will, um, who also plug in and they have a great email list. There's, there's really a, um, a you know, if, if it's just through email and, and Twitter, those two things alone, I think, can plug people in. If you're international, I'd say go look at My Society, which is probably the flagship civic hacking yeah. organization in England and, and a model uh, for lots and lots of folks around the world. Um, but those would be like the three easiest entry points. Um, to me, we try mm-hmm. to cover we try to cover this stuff a lot on on the blog I edit, Tech President, um, and so that'll be you know that's another entry point as well. Um, you know we're going to have ups and downs of this movement. It's not all going to be smooth sailing, um, but you know I, I I have a lot of uh, you know I'm a congenital optimist, so I think people um, and, and, and are going to make it want, happen. 
I'm with you. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard to think to stop openness. It's kind of entertaining to watch people try. Uh, yeah. Just real mm-hmm. quick, and the tumbling you do with people, any particular thing that works for you in putting your conference together or bringing people together, any, anything that you are very conscious of in doing that that really helps them, like having – how do you have, you know, more conservative and liberal folks together? What helps make that possible? Uh, you know, honestly, that's much more of a high touch thing. I, I'm I'm a bit old school, I guess. It still comes down to um you gotta talk to people face to face. Um I mean I am I am always excited when I discover somebody new and what I find is um they the, the the internet is doing a great job of sort of, of people get attracted to the same fire. So, for example, um, one person I'm really excited about, a young new writer, a woman named Zainab Tufeki. Um, she just burst onto my radar after Malcolm Gladwell wrote his kind of stupid <laughs> thing. And she had the absolute best, smartest critique I'd seen anywhere. And now, you know, I just read everything she writes. We're going to have her speak at PDF for sure. Um, and what I've noticed is that um, around these debates, uh, many of the, the both the old names and the newer ones are, are very quickly, um, you can find them clustering uh, when the, when the, whether it's a moment of revolution or it's a moment of high debate uh, because of somebody's provocation. Usually the best stuff uh, uh, filters up pretty easily. So I, I know that's not a very concrete answer for you, um, except that, you know, we do try to reflect it back on tech president. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, maybe I maybe I should be doing more to actually curate my own activity. Yes, Kevin, techno Yeah, you got the right. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, she, so right. Kevin, any tumbling tips for people this week? Maybe anything that worked for you really well at South by and connecting people? Um. The, the, the South, the thing that worked for me at South by was a combination of, of, of lanyard, um, which is L-E-N-Y-R-D, which is a conference tracking um, w- website, which meant that I could actually keep track of all the different sessions. Mm. But then just listening to people through whatever channels were available and relaxing and, and saying, OK, I don't need to do that. I can just do this. Um, the other thing that we that um, we had one of our one of our lunches. We had a, a chat about me being the link whisperer, which I thought thought was amusing. But um, it's true. <laughs> and I started doing the very tips that you gave us. So, so tell everybody. So, so, so my tips. my tip from that was um, use Google Reader. Um, you don't have to turn off turn off the the, the count so it doesn't look, look like an inbox. So it's just a flow. Um, add as many feeds as you like to it and don't assume you need to read them all, but make subgroups for ones you, if you want to read them. Because if you've added stuff to Google Reader, you can then search just within those feeds. So you can add something very, you know, that has a lot of volume to it to there and then have a targeted search that just hits that subset of things, which is very good for if you find good sources, feed them into that, um, and then you, then it, you can um, search them out again. And also there are a couple of nice... Um, there's recommended links and... Um, there's there's a couple of ways you can fiddle with it to 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 give you different shufflings of the of the set of feeds you put into it, so you can get some serendipity out of it too. So I'm, Google Reader is very I find very useful. So, yeah, so this I'm came out of it so I can now search my Twitter feeds, which is great. Right. So this came out of a conversation where we decided that Kevin is our link whisperer. So I'm putting you on the spot, Mr. Marks, and you're going to put a blog post up on our site <laughs> to, as a techno tumbling tip. How's that? 
And okay. uh, that's part of how you can get these tweets. It's sort of real time. You're like Fred and Howard Stern, that's sort of Kevin with the tweets because he can access everything that fast. Yes. But now you can too. And that's helpful. So what, Deb, what worked for you in connecting people in the last week? Well, on a really human level, uh, I think there's so much, especially the conference like South by where people just want to talk and promote and do what, te- you know, there's a lot of shouting and not a lot of listening. So I just tried to ask people what they're doing and um, what brought them to South by and, you know, what was new or different. And then that starts the conversation because there's a lot of people hawking stuff out there. So just that. And those conversations are generally boring as hell. Uh, if someone's selling you, that's your, I find it generally boring. Exactly. Because I'm more interested in why they care about the thing that they're supposedly selling me than their version of what's going to sell me. I, like what I, brought you here? I would say that I had a couple of very successful tumbling moments where I brought, um, I did run a couple panels in my sort of usual style, oh, including one on oversharing, um, the end of shame, which I, when, when it's out, um, Melissa Jira recorded it. So she'll have it up at Melissa Jira, uh, dot com grant.com and I'll put it up uh, when I get it. And it was with Cindy Gallup, Jeff Jarvis, myself, and Melissa Jira and the room and quite a few interesting people. And, um, we talked a lot lot about openness, personal openness and the choice to do it and why and what it, what it means and how it can transform space and how you do. There was a lot of intense tumbling stuff, not only in the session, but in the topic and, and, um, what really prompted it was Melissa's concern about this sort of backlash, shaming, calling things over sharing that are just openness, right? Which is in a way mm. linked to everything you've been, mm. you've been saying, Micha, which is now we're getting these cables that are even redacted and they're considered oversharing, mm. even though supposedly it's the government of the people. And these are supposedly not things that are threatening anyone's life. So that, that's, that's good. one thing that came up. Um, things that worked for me in that room and in a couple of get togethers I helped make happen were, uh, when I picked a space that was away from where everybody else was, I like to go in the other direction. <laughs> like if it's very loud over in the left, I went quiet on the right. And then I just texted a ton of different people who I'd been meaning to see because it's so hard to find people. But because I'd picked a space, uh, Sarah's Volitz is really good. She's got a lot of tips about this, about if how to make it easy for other people. This is true in email as well. Like very pick good a time point. and space, be very specific. I picked a quiet place where there's a bar where we knew we could be, where no one else was going to be. And I also let everybody else know when I was inviting them who else was already there and who was on their way, which lets you know, oh, I'm going to get to see this bunch of people and tumbled some really cool mixes of people. Terry Senf, who I highly that recommend. That was great. Yeah. was brilliant. T-E-R-R-I-S-E-N-F-T. And she's a, she's a professor now in sabbatical in New York now, but wrote like the book on webcam girls and a lot of political stuff and gender and race online. Her, Deb Shaw and, uh, and Randall Thomas having an amazing, very complex conversation about race uh, online and, and openness. So, that really worked well, having a quiet space and also just pulling people to you, which I'm used to, like, like you're talking about going to other people, kind of going to their faces. But in this environment, it was useful to say, right here, mm. you guys come here um, and right now, and we're just not going to move. And and in a big crowded situation for tumbling stuff, it, it was very effective a couple times. Then it was like having this cocktail party. So I, if I'd planned it a month ahead, I couldn't have gotten that mix. I mean, Clive Thompson, Clay Shirky. Uh, Lily Chang, Deb came, right? Like you came over and then you brought yep. people and I mean, it was open and anyone could have come, but it made it very easy for people to be there. So yeah, that's I think my that, tip. Quiet that's and alcohol a- and texting who else is there. 
And that's sort of in the craziness that something is. Sometimes people just want an easy, I love the easy way to grab onto something. And while you were talking, I mean, I'm so terrible at pimping my own stuff. I did give a solo talk for the first time ever at South by, which is just the wrong place to do is, you know, I've been on lots of panels. It was weird to do a solo talk, but what I did was I opened the room with the conversation and the questions from everybody. So everyone always leaves the questions to the end, you know, and so knowing that it was just going to be me up there. So, you know, it was really great to sort of just start that way. Why do I have to start? You know, so we literally started with people. What brought you to the room today and why are you here? And I think that's great. So open with questions, find a quiet place, let everyone else will be there and put in the FaceTime when you need to and Google reader your tweets so you can search them. Those are our, our tumbling tips for today. This has been um, really just a pleasure to have you, Micha. Thanks for being mm. with us. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of and fun. hopefully, Thanks. you know, in the future, if there are different things you want to dig into and how to how are we going to make the government iterative and tumble, we'd love <laughs> to get into that more in the future because it's how are we going to make the country better, I think, regardless of party. I can't imagine anyone's happy with how, yeah, how yeah. that works now. So It's important work. Uh, yep. So we'll be here. You can get this uh, more information at T-U-M-M-E-L-V-I-S-I-O-N dot TV. We've got all kinds of archived episodes with all kinds of amazing guests. Join us and listen uh, every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. There's a pre-show and a post-show that you only get if you show up here in real time with everybody. And uh, we've got some great guests coming up in a couple of weeks. We've got Thomas Knoll, who's sort of the... uh, the Tumblr for, for Amazon, which should be pretty interesting. And, and Andy Carvin's coming up too in the next month. If you've got suggestions of people you'd like to see in the mm-hmm. show, please let us know. Uh, you can find me online at H-E-A-T-H-R. Micha, what's your, what's your Twitter handle? M-L-S-I-F. Kevin? Hmm? <laughs> what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> oh, Kevin, Kevin Marks. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was watching Alpha. Deb, Twitter <laughs> I was handle. talking to Zeno, sorry. Oh, and, and I've been typing, uh, uh, mine's Deb's, D-E-B-S. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and this has been another rockin' episode of Tamil Vision. Just producing the wonderful Baltimore, Maryland by Andrew Hazlitt, the wonderful Andrew Hazlitt of the modern.net. We'll see you here next week. Until then, rock out. Night, you people.